Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, just begin with a, a favorite story uh, from Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. Uh, so, so the way the parable goes, and by the way, whenever there's a king in a parable, you should always know that that stands for God. And, mm. and so, so anyway, so there's a king and he has this palace. Um, by the way, anytime you have a palace, that stands for this world. <laughs> Maybe I'm getting it. Maybe I should just tell you the story. So anyway, there's a king and, and he has this, this palace and he has this grand sort of room in this palace and he invites two artists to come in, one to paint one side of this like amazing room and someone to paint the other side of the amazing room. And, um, you know, it's this fantastic opportunity. So the, uh, the first artist gets to work immediately and starts like, you know, painting this incredibly beautiful, elaborate, you know, thing and using just every single moment very, very productively. And the other artist is thinking, you know, I got plenty of time. <laughs> you know, so, so that's obviously a lot of us in this world. It's sort of like we think we got just all the time in the world to do whatever it is that we want. And, and so, you know, he, he decides, you know, to, to take a while um, before he gets started. And, and then before he realizes it, the deadline is there. And he hasn't even begun. And he walks into the workspace and he sees what the other artist has done. And it's like, oh my God, it's amazing. Even if he had went to work that moment, he wouldn't be able to approach what the other person had already done. So he's like thinking like, you know, the king's going to show up and, and he's going to look at my work. And what, what do I have to show exactly? And he gets an idea. The time comes, and the king comes, and he looks at the, the, first, the first artist's work, which is on one side of, you know, the, the same room, and is just flabbergasted. He's like, this is amazing, this is fantastic, and he praises the person. And then he turns to the other artist, and the other artist has, has spread a curtain over his work, and the king, you know, says, okay, now let's, let's see what you've done. And he pulls back the curtain, and what the person arrived at, what the second artist had arrived at, was he made a massive mirror on that wall, mm. so it completely reflected wow. the work of the first artist. So it looked like it was the identical thing that the other one had done, wow. but it was because of the mirror. And of course, the, the king realized immediately what he had done, and the king laughed, and he sort of like appreciated, like, the predicament that the person had gotten into and his effort to try to find a sort of like a solution out of it. And, and so, so there's, there's, there's a, there, to me, you know, thinking about th that story, there's a lot of very deep messages in it. And, and I'll just kind of give you my take on it, which is, you know, you look at, Well, let's just take a couple of steps back. I, I remember Rabbi Green talking about a, a, a very interesting case. See, there, there's something to handwriting analysis. Whether, whether it's a science, I don't know if it's a science, but there are personality traits that show up in a person's handwriting. This, this, in my opinion anyway, this seems to be real graphology, they call it, right? Like how far you want to take it, that, that's another question. But the idea that you express your personality in your writing, there, there is something to that. And I, I heard Rabbi Green say one time that 
that someone had a particular thing that needed fixing. I, I don't remember what it was. And they had recommended that the person change their handwriting. And that in changing their handwriting, they sort of like ended up reverse engineering certain character traits. So that, it, it's, a, it, it's a striking example. It's perhaps an extreme example, but it's a striking example how um, if you act a certain way, and now I'm sort of like um, making the point perhaps better, beyond handwriting, of course, if you act a certain way, your very actions have an influence on the way that you feel. So usually a person would say, well, why should I do that if I'm not feeling it? And yet, the science today, a lot of studies show that if you actually act a certain way, or the shorthand for this is act as if, if you act as if it were true, a lot of times there's this reverse surprising, reverse engineering that goes on where it reflects back on you and you start to, you start to feel that way. Um, and there are all sorts of you know, secrets in terms of how that actually happens. Like for instance, um, I read one time that when you frown, you, there's, I don't know how many, something like, I'm making this number up, but something like 14 different muscles that uh, have pressure applied to them. And a person's not even aware of it. And that actually influences your mood. It actually puts you in a bad mood because you, you've got all these different you know, pressure points in your face that are being squeezed in an uncomfortable way. And whether you're aware of it or not, that, that influences your mood. When you smile, apparently, that actually signals certain centers of the brain that releases, I don't know if it's endorphins or what the actual scientific terms are, but it actually releases, let's just call it happy juice in your brain. And it's sort of like, you feel happy when you smile. Now, so the question is, okay, but I'm not in the mood to smile because I'm not happy. But here's where the teaching comes. If you smile, it might actually cause you to feel happy. So that's the, that's, that, that's the, interesting, that's the interesting thing. So, so we have a principle in the Talmud called... Uh, which means that if you do something not for the sake of heaven, but you keep on doing something, even though you, you have ulterior motives, right? The only reason why I'm doing this is whatever, to get a job, or the only reason why I'm doing this is to gain, you know, honor and respect from whoever it is, right? So that would be considered maybe ulterior motives or whatever it is. So, so, interestingly, what's Judaism's take on doing something good for ulterior motives? Do it! <laughs> Absolutely do it! Absolutely do it! Um, and then, if you keep on doing it for your ulterior motives, and here's the surprising, revelatory next part of the statement, you will come to do it not for ulterior motives. That, that just the actual doing creates this refining, elevating process where you'll actually get into the thing itself, you know? So, you know, they, they give a, a, a famous example. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it. Um, I haven't seen it inside for a while, which is uh, someone comes to uh, Shammai and Hillel coming to convert, and, and says, I'll convert under the condition 
that after I convert a made the coin gadol, the high priest, right? This is in Gemur Shabbos, I think, page 30, 30, 31, if you want to look at it. And Shammai says, you know, basically, no, you know, this is, you know, not happening. And Hillel basically leads him to a place where he discovers on his own that it's not possible. And, but that learning process of being immersed in Torah and learning more and more about Torah and everything like that created a situation within him where he still wanted to do it even without have, being, becoming the high priest, the Kohen Kettle. So, so, so it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting thing. You see, you know, as much as, as, much as we want to think of our, ourselves as primarily perhaps a soul, or, and, and this body is just sort of this meat suit that allows us to, when we reach for something, to be able to hold on to it without it falling to the floor, you know, which it might if we were just a soul, or our soul, our hand, would actually just go through the can of soda, not even be able to lift it. Um, or perhaps we have a, a different point of view, which is we're primarily a body, Right? And, you know, this body sort of like organically generates interesting ideas because a lot of people have, you know, that, that's, ba- that's basically their take on afterlife experiences. Well, it's just this sort of like chemical reaction in the brain and whatever. The fact that everyone has it in all different cultures and they're all basically thinking the same thing, you know, is meaningless to, to that approach because it's just sort of this organic, you know, Brainial, that's that's a real word, right? It's a brainial process, you know. No, I'm just joking. Um, so it's like but but then that's that's the that's the view that we're primarily just as meat suit, right? But we're we're a body and a soul. We're a body and a soul. And 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 each is working together. And you know, certainly Torah recognizes as as, as spiritual a you know system as Torah is. Torah is all about, you know, the intermeshing of spirituality and materiality. I mean, that's that's the whole system. Is that that that's why, like, the the Torah ideal is someone who's like very much involved in this world. Like many religions, the the ideal is someone who separates themselves. Like the priest in Catholicism doesn't get married, doesn't have children. He's not he's not involved in that 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 di- at least direct front lines of family life within his own experience, you know. He might be involved in counseling families or whatever it is, but in terms of dealing with a wife and kids running around and whatever it is, that's that's not the, the, the priestly experience in Catholicism. In in Eastern religions, the guru is, is often separated and meditated and is on his own. But the the Torah model is no, you're there, you're eating, you're doing business, you're running around, you're having kids, you're having families, like you're very much involved in every material aspect of this world. It's a very unique system. It's a very unique system. But the idea is that we're elevating everything that we're coming into contact with, right? And again, that's why, that's why there's so much Jewish law. Because people like again, you know, I, I always think of the the poor the, <laughs> the poor person who not not poor, I mean sort of sorryful person who comes to a Shabbos table on Friday night and experiences and soaks in all the spirituality and all the love and is enjoying it so much and then finds out there's six hundred and thirteen commandments. 
and they're like, what happened? You know, I was here for the soup, and now all of a sudden you're telling me about tefillin, and it's like, and this, that, and the other thing, and like, what is going on? What is going on is, is that, is that the whole point is that there is nothing that can't be elevated in this world. There's no, there's no such thing as a secular moment. If God fills the entire universe, that means there has to be a holy, special, elevated way to do everything, including the most mundane things in the entire world, like putting your socks and shoes on, like taking a shower, like whatever it is. In other words, when you look at it from that point of view, which is really the Torah point of view, you realize, wow, I can do this in a special way and that in a special way. And there has to be everything under the sun from the moment I'm born to the, my last breath that I can do in a special way. That, and that, that is why there's so much Torah law. Not, not because the rabbis are control freaks, right? But that, that, that perspective is, is often either lost or just never, it's just underexposed that, or undertaught. People, people don't get that. But when, once you get that, and then you take that on as much as you can, you know, a step at a time, a step at a time. So, so, so getting back to this idea, right, that, that you're, you're, shalolishma bolishma, that, that, that you're, that if you do something for alternative, ulterior motives, but you stay involved in it, you, you'll, you, the, the, the experience itself will purify and elevate you. The, the, especially if you do it on a regular basis and you stay with it. The, experi- the experiential element, because we are body and soul together, because the body and the soul, the environment and the interior and the exterior are interfacing constantly, and both have legitimacy, something, some new construct is going to evolve within yourself. So, so if you copy someone, so again, let's get back to the idea of this painting in the mirror, right? The idea is that if you copy someone, this is on a deeper level, if you copy someone, someone who's very elevated, if a student copies his rabbi, like the Hasidim are like very much like, what is the Rebbe doing, right? Like, let's do what the Rebbe's doing. Like, if you mirror the Rebbe, then those external practices that you're taking on, it's not just sort of a copying or spirituality for a, a form of imitation. No, 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 there's, a, there's this, some transference that's going on. See, like for instance, you know, some people look at the way Hasidim dress, and they, you know, especially like the, the fur hats, the, you know, the, you know, like, uh, the stri- the uh, the or the spotuk, you know the, these fur hats, which were worn by originally po- Polish noblemen, like in the I don't know 1500s, 1600s, right? So, so someone often people will say, well, you know, the Hasidim today they're just dressing up like Polish non-Jewish noblemen from like the 15 or 1600s. Like this is so silly. But I thought about it one time, and I'm like, no, wait a second. The Baal Shem Tov dress like that. They're not dressing up like Polish noblemen. They're dressing like the Baal Shem Tov. It's very different. It's very, very different. You know? So, uh, so 
I remember Rabbi Green once joked. He Rabbi Green wears a black hat, and and many many uh, people who you know you know are very involved in the Torah community. They they wear a black hat and everything like that. And and um, so Rabbi Green told me one time that uh, someone was yelling at him over the phone over something. Uh, I'm sure, it was a misunderstanding. And and she said, I bet you dress up like a Polish nobleman from the 1600s. And he said, I do not. I dress like an American businessman from the 1950s. <laughs> so, so anyway, nonetheless, nonetheless, what 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 is that? Because that that form of dress, whatever it is, even if it's neither of those things, even if you're just putting on something that's um special to you for Shabbos. Right? Because, you know, there's no, certainly no law behind having to wear a, a, a strimal or, or a black hat for that matter, or, or anything in particular for that matter. You know, as long as you're dressing in, in a way that's, that you feel is lending honor to the day, the specialness of the day. But it puts you in another frame of mind. So would I, you know, if you come into the Happy Menu and see people are dressed from, in, in everything, from, you know, a t-shirt and jeans to... To a strimal, by the way, you know, or we have the entire spectrum there. But what I would say to to everyone, and and this is even people who would wear a jacket and and, and a tie even, um, make sure that you have a special set of clothes or multiple sets of clothes, whatever you can swing, for Shabbos and for Yantav. So if if this is, say say you wear a tie to, to, to Shul. But that should be just a tie that you wear in Shabbos, right? Or let's say you wear jeans to shul, right? But that should be a special set of jeans just for Shabbos, right? So that's, that's, that's important. That, that's, that's called Big Day Shabbos, the, the clothes of Shabbos. Big Day Shabbos are very important. And um, I heard from Reb Tzadik Akoin that the way, so to speak, bless you, the way, so to speak, that you're dressed in heaven, right? Even though we're not in a physical form at that point, so this is kind of, you have to sort of like extend this thought to its spiritual conclusion. A person is dressed in their big day Shabbos. So in other words, that the, the, those garments kind of, in, in whatever spiritual form, remain with you. Um, and again, this is sort of the act as if that your experiential thing will influence your internal process. Because if you wear something special or something different, and let's just define special as being special to you, right? Then when you put that on, you're, you, you feel like you're in a different mode. Like when you, you do, everybody knows when you get dressed up for a wedding or you get dressed up for a party and that you're really trying to make an effort to look a certain way for, you know that that influences your mood. It just, it, it, it does. I mean, you know, that, that idea, clothes makes the man. Right? Why? Because it gives you a certain level of confidence or a, a certain point of view, whatever it is, you know? But again, we're talking about how actions influence feelings and how copying, like copying, can actually be, if you, if you pick someone who you want to copy, who you feel as though is on the level that is worthy, that you want those traits, Copying can actually be a very productive thing. See, so, so again, this is not. Don't don't please, please don't misinterpret me. I'm, I'm not talking about um, 
you know, stopping to be yourself or denying your own individuality. I'm not, I'm not talking about that, right? Because, because you will bring to that new version of yourself all those unique and special qualities that you have. So, so it's, not, it's not replacing yourself with someone else, but it's, it's allowing yourself to sort of springboard off of a higher trampoline, if you will. You know, you're doing the, the extra jump, but now you've got like a, a higher vantage point to, to be yourself from. Um, so, so, yeah, so, so, so let's go deeper now. Because, because when we're, when we're copying, and now, now we're kind of getting more to what I want to talk about. Where, where, does the, where does the copying really hit its real kind of like, you know, critical kind of level? We're supposed to copy God. <laughs> right? That, that's where this thing really sort of get, gets juiced up, so to speak. That's where it really kicks in. And, and that's not just me talking and just sort of like extending this idea another step. You should know. This is an enshrined Jewish principle. And where do we learn it from, by the way? When God visits Avraham Avinu, after the third day of his bris, when he's like at the height of his pain from recovering from this surgery that he performed on himself at the age of 99, by the way, um, God visits, God visits Avraham. And, and if you look in the commentaries, you see that that is where, that right there is where we learn this mitzvah, this very great uh, idea of visiting the sick. That, from that action. And not only that, but then the, the rabbis go further and they say, from there, we learn the principle of imitating God. That just like God clothes the naked and, 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 and feeds the hungry and visits the sick, we're supposed to imitate God and do those things. So this is actually a pretty far out idea. Because, because do you understand? This is actually changing the relationship between us and God. It's going beyond a command standpoint because because we could be told, no, 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 you're commanded to do those things, says God. But this is saying, no, imitate God who's doing these things. <laughs> be godlike. That's that's intense. That's intense. So now let's take this to the next step, okay? And I think that this is um, I think that this is awesome because we're, we're going to take this everything we've been talking about and just ratchet it up, okay? So we have to set up this next idea. So, but again, this idea of imitating God, that's what we're going to get back to at the end of this next section. So, if I were to ask you, where's the first Yudke Vavke, the first mention of God's holiest name, right? The, the Tetragrammaton, the Shemavaya, right? The, which means God is, was, and will be, which is an expression of God's absolute infinity. All right? Where is the first mention of that in the Torah, in the five books? So before I knew the answer, if you were to ask me, I'd say, well, it's got to come pretty quickly. I mean, it's got to, it's got to maybe, maybe the first 
verse of the Torah. I don't know. Like, let's let's go with that, right? So the answer is, and I'll explain to you the absolute beauty and wisdom of this. Uh, and it, I'm I'm learning from the Mayor and I am from the Chernobyl Rebbe. Um, so believe it or not, it's not until God is finished explaining the first seven days of creation. So you have the first seven days of creation. I'm going to explain this better in a moment. But you have the first seven days of creation, um, concluding with Shabbos, right? God's creation of Shabbos, which, by the way, is the last creation. It's not, you, you might think, well, um, the, the last thing that God created was human beings. But God created one more thing after human beings, which is Shabbos. So the, the, the very first verse after this unit of the seven days, and by the way, that, that is a unit of Torah. It's not a separate Parsha of Torah, but it's a unit of Torah. And I'll, I'll tell you my proof for that is that when we finish the Torah and we begin it again on Simcha's Torah day, we stop reading after the, after the recitation of the first seven days. So from there you see it's a unit of Torah if it's not its own Parsha. The very first verse after the seventh day, you see the appearance of the, of the Hashem's holiest name, the Yudke Vavke. The very first verse afterwards. So that seems like, oh, that's interesting. Why is it happening right there? Like the very first moment after that. Why right there? What's the logic? Okay, now meanwhile, what name of God is being used the first seven days? The name Elohim, which, which stands for the natural order of things. And remember, we always have to explain that um, when you have different names for God in the Torah, we're only talking about Hashem. We're only talking about the creator of heaven and earth. But just like each of us have different names, like someone might call you, well, I'll just talk about me, like my kids call me daddy, like God willing, I have grandkids, they'll call me grandpa or something like that. You know, my son's friends call me Mr. Sachs, right? So, so each of us have different, a series of names. God also, and, and, and why would you call me, say, Mr. Sachs as opposed to Daddy? Because that's how I am manifesting myself at that moment, right? Or, you know, I joke, if you cut the line or do some, like, weird driving maneuver and someone, like, screams at you, right? So that's how you're manifesting yourself at that moment, whatever names they're calling you at that, at that time. So, so, in other words... However, God is manifesting himself at that moment in the Torah, meaning to say whatever quality is being exhibited, love or justice or power or whatever it is, there will be a special name which will pinpoint the manifestation of that divine energy at that point. But we're only talking about one God, the God of Israel. That's all we're talking about. Okay, good. So when we have this name Elohim, how is Hashem manifesting himself at, in, in, with this name Elohim? So in the first seven days, it means that he's creating the physical universe. He's creating nature. He's creating this material world. Okay? Okay. We're almost there. We're not there yet. So again, we have this name Elohim, which is the natural order. And then we have the Yudke Vavke, which is this name hinting at the all-powerfulness of God immediately afterwards. So how, how, we're almost there. How are we explaining this? So again, this is from the Chernobyl Rebbe. So this is, I think, my example. 
Um, but this is what he's this is what he's saying. Imagine you're very thirsty and 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 you ask someone for a drink of water, and they turn on this industrial power hose, right, and inch from your face, <laughs> full blast, and it just like <laughs> sends you flying across the room, and and you're no less thirsty. You didn't even get one drop of water. It was just this like power blast to your face. You know, it was you asked for water, you got it, but it didn't help. It did not do the job. Okay, so, so that's like this name Yudke Vavke. <laughs> like if it's just you standing in front of like God's almightiness, it obliterates everything in its path because you you don't have the vessels to absorb that. As it says in the Torah, no one sees God face to face and, and lives. Right? There is no. There's no way. Okay, but let's say you have Hoover Dam. I don't know if you've ever been to Hoover Dam, but it's this, it's this massive, massive dam, okay? And then, but a few blocks away, or even within Hoover Dam in the bathroom, you can turn on a faucet, and all of that water, right, which could flood a city if, if the gates went up, all of that water just trickles out of a faucet into your cup. There's this whole plumbing system which takes it and then reduces it and reduces it and reduces it and reduces it to a way where that water now becomes accessible. Okay, so now let's put all these thoughts together. That's what this world is. That's what this world is. This world is this, if you will, just to continue the metaphor, this divine system of pipes which allows you to take this Hoover Dam-like massive energy, right? And to step it down, step it down. It's called Simpson. Condense it, condense it, condense it until you can look at, right, a sunset and you go, ah, oh, God, <laughs> right? Where you can receive this notion of Yudke Vavke, you can look in a baby's face or an heirloom tomato, right? And you can see a manifestation of the infinity of God. But it has to be stepped down, stepped down through the natural order first. So that's why the Yudke Vavke is right after God completes the physical world. Because now the plumbing system, so to speak, is in place where you can now actually receive it, where it's not a blast to the face from a power, you know, fire hose, but now it's coming out of a faucet of a cup. So what's the faucet? The faucet is the world itself. The faucet is the natural order itself. Now you can receive the infinity of God through interfacing with the beauty of the world. Okay, we're almost there. Now that's the Chernobyl. Now I want to I want to add one more step. So this is from me, but it's completely built on what we've just said. Remember, we're talking about copying God. We're talking about copying God. Now listen to this. This is amazing. This is amazing. To me, it's amazing anyway. Let's now look at that first verse where you see the Yudke Vavke. Like, okay, we know it appears in the first verse after the seven days. We get it now. Now we understand. But aren't you curious? What's, well, what does that verse say? <laughs> like, like, I want to know what that verse says. Um, so, actually, I probably should tell you what the verse is. But, but before I tell you that, um, 
there is a very interesting word, one of the most interesting words in the entire Torah, and there's a ton of Torah commentary on this word, right before, a couple words before, we have the Yud Kevavke. By the way, if you want to see what that first verse is, it's chapter 2, verse 4. It says, these are, it says, Eli toldos hashemaim va'aretz, so they say these are the products. I don't, I don't, okay, that's I guess their translation. These are the products of the heaven and the earth when they were created on the day that Hashem Yudke Vavke made earth and heaven. Okay. Anyway, we're not going to go word by word to try to decode that. But but what's for us right now? What's really interesting here is that two words before the Yudke Vavke is this word Behibaram. And the Hebaram has a small hay in it, and I mean, I'm, just trust me, there's tons and tons and tons of Torah on this, on that one word, on this one Pasuk. But, but the Zohar says about this word, Behibaram, that if you rearrange the letters of this word, Behibaram, it spells the word Be'avraham. So all of a sudden, way before Abraham is, is uh, we haven't even done the story of the Garden of Eden and eating from the tree of knowledge yet. We haven't even done that yet in the Torah. All of a sudden there's a, an appearance of Abraham. It's deep. And so it's like really the model person, the model person is being hinted at why the whole heavens and earth were created to begin with. We've got this, this reference to Abraham right there. Anyway, so, so Abraham is mentioned and then two words after that, or th- the third word, after that, you have the first appearance of the Yud Kevavke. So, so what does that mean? So I'd like to suggest it means the following, which is that we talked about how the whole natural order is like basically creating this context, creating this piping system, so that something so massive, something so incredible as the name of God can actually become manifest in a way that we can that it can be accessible that can that we can relate to it that it won't blow us away that we can interface with it but do you know what that last faucet is that last step is before the name comes out you <laughs> the human being cuz the name doesn't appear the yudke vavke doesn't appear until you see the name avraham in other words if you, what is that faucet that the Yudke Vavke is coming out of? It's you and me. That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. That means that you are the final gateway that ushers God's infinite light into the world. Your actions become an expression of God's greatness. This is the idea of being a mirror or a window, if you will, of God, right? Because ultimately God's existence is going to be manifest through you and through your actions. And now with this in mind, we can sort of like revisit one of the old-time classic teachings from the Kutzka Rebbe, who asks, where is God? So, you know, instinctually, I think everyone wants to answer everywhere. But think of it this way now, in the context of what we just learned. God can be everywhere, but if a person is stabbing the other person in the back and speaking Rosh and Hara and doing all sorts of horrible things, it almost doesn't matter that God is everywhere. 
because what's becoming manifest in the world is just nonsense and, and, and just wickedness, essentially. Right? But the Katskarevi, so, so the teaching from the Katskarevi is, where is God? Wherever you make a place for him. <laughs> See, this is so deep, because don't you think the Katskarevi knows that God is everywhere? Don't you think that would be the easiest way for him to answer his own question? But he's saying something so much more trenchant. He's saying, where is God wherever you make a place for him? In other words, you are that final gate. Wherever you act in a way that mirrors God, that reflects God, that's actually where he becomes revealed and shows up. While he's everywhere. So here you see the depth of the partnership that God has created between God and human beings. Because here you see that it's sort of like, yes, of course God is absolutely everywhere. And yet simultaneously he created a construct where it's also completely up to us. That's amazing. That's amazing. He still remains God in the world. And he still does whatever he wants to do in the world. And yet you see we are the, the gatekeepers to his light. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's scary in a way. You know, the Ramak, who's one of the great Kabbalists, says that when we become angry, Right? You say, why did you do that? Yelling, 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 right? What are you doing at that point? You're channeling God's anger into the world by your decision to become angry. <laughs> and if you go, oh, I'm so happy to see you. You look great. What have you been up to? I missed you so much. At that moment, you're channeling God's love into the world. Again, you're at this divine, every single person is, is at all times in front of this divine remote control panel. And they can actually trigger what qualities of heavenly light or what name of God, if you will, if you want to connect it back to that, is becoming, is becoming processed into the world. That's, that's, you know, if you want to feel powerful, that's Wow. You know? Um, you know, some people think, I'm so insignificant, what do I matter? But when you, see, when you see that, you're actually the last gateway through which God's light comes into the world? I mean, what do you matter? The, everything is built on you. The whole system is built on you. So... So there's another point I want to make, just changing, kind of rearranging the deck slightly, but, but, but it's, I, it, it's, it's, a, it's a new teaching, something that I got excited about. I want to share it. And it has to do with, um, well, before, before I get into it, let me just create a better transition. So how do we, how do we copy God? How do we effectively make ourselves good gatekeepers, right? If we're the last stop, you know, 
deciding how God's light transitions from the infinite through this physical universe. How, how, how can I be a good gatekeeper? I want to be a good gatekeeper. Okay, Torah mitzvahs. End of discussion. Right there, Torah mitzvahs. Those are your instructions for how to channel the light into the world in an effective, godly way. See, what does it mean God keeps the mitzvahs? We say God keeps all 613 mitzvahs. Well, we know God doesn't have a body. So how is God putting on tefillin? He doesn't have an arm. Where's the tefillin going, right? You can't take that teaching literally that he's doing all the mitzvahs. But yet we say 100% he's doing all the mitzvahs. So what does that mean? Well, I'll give you one interpretation. If we do the mitzvahs, we're godlike. Because God, so to speak, is doing the mitzvahs. In other words, God, God is giving us the ability, since God is doing these things, so to speak, or this is his will, maybe on an even maybe more understandable level, if he has put his will into these actions, then when we do these actions, we're funneling God into the world. Not only that, but we're really copying God, because if God is doing the mitzvahs, and we're doing the mitzvahs, then what did we talk about in the whole beginning of this talk? Our actions then change our insides, and since these actions are godlike, we become more godlike. Right? Now, again, we're not God. Man is not God. Man has godliness within him, but don't make the mistake that other religions have made. Man is not God. That's, that is taking it too far. Like that takes that's like one step over the cliff too far. That's like ah uh, too far. <laughs> okay, but does man have godliness within him? A thousand percent. But man is not God. So that's our soul. Our soul is an aspect of God, and and a beautiful visualization is. You have the ocean, and you have a wave off the ocean. The wave is completely made out of the ocean, but the wave is not the ocean. <laughs> Your soul is a wave. It's not the ocean. But, you, but it is made entirely out of the ocean. But it's not the ocean. But it's an emanation of the ocean. So... So we do these mitzvahs and now we're amazing gatekeepers because at this critical juncture, remember, first you have the name Avraham according to the Zohar, Behibaram, right? You rearrange that. And by the way, if, if, if the Torah wanted to say Avraham, why didn't it just say Avraham? It says it later. It's not like it doesn't know how to spell Avraham. Let it just say Avraham there. So I wanted to say on a deep level, you know something? You have to rearrange yourself in order to make yourself the ideal transmitter. Hmm. See? All of us have something to fix. That's why we're in this world. You, 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 think, you think you're just born that way? You're born good, but it's kind of like you're like the big box from Ikea. It's all there, but you've got to put yourself together.
right? So can you imagine like, it's sort of like you walk into, like someone says, hey man, I got to take you to my new place. I'm so excited. I'm so excited, you know? And, and, and I got to tell you something else. It's furnished. Really? Yeah. And not like this junky stuff. I got all new stuff from Ikea. It's amazing. And you go, wow, you know, you really have it together. I'm so impressed. Like, I can't wait. So you, he opens up the door and it's an empty room filled with cardboard boxes. <laughs> Here it is, man. It's furnished. You, you didn't put the stuff together. Ah, it's all there. <laughs> Where am I going to sit? On the floor. <laughs> Where am I going to put my bag? On the floor. So we can't allow that to be the story of our lives because we do have it in us. But there's work that needs to be done. And that's the point. It's not like... See, here, here's the problem. I heard Rabbi Green refer to this. I, I think he gave it a name, the whole Spider-Man syndrome. I think he called it that. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he didn't give it a name. But he said that it's such a, an especially American thing to think that you get bitten by the spider, right? That's the, the origin of Spider-Man. And he gets bitten by a radioactive spider. And then all of a sudden, the next day, he has superpowers. The next day. It doesn't work like that. This is not it. You know, I heard a, uh, one of these um, podcasts, and it was this guy who really wanted to be a superhero in real life. He was like, you know, he was being honest. Like a lot of people, I think, probably feel that way, you know. And one time, he was taking a shower, and um, I guess he was taking a, a hot shower. And all of a sudden, he stopped feeling the heat. And he thought, it just, it happened. I have now become impervious to heat. This day that I've been secretly dreaming for, this is a true story, <laughs> happened. I'm like, fireproof. And what he came to realize was the building ran out of hot water. <laughs> he was no longer in hot water, but that took him a while to figure out. I thought you were going to say he had a stroke. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, so, so that's the, that's the, th that is somehow um, wired into our brains that it's this, that the, that the furniture comes assembled. <clears throat> and then if it doesn't come assembled, then just give up because you're a loser, because you did something wrong. Because, okay, everyone else has seemed to have come assembled. They seem to all be able to pay their bills. Mine did not come assembled, so I'm stuck with a box that... Have you tried opening the box? Oh, I hadn't really considered that, you know? <laughs> about emptying the box contents on the floor and looking in the instructions. Oh, you can do that? <laughs> You know, a lot of people talk about the Torah as a, the, the sort of like the user's manual to the world. That's what we're talking about. 
But so much of this plays into people's expectations about their life and this world and themselves and everything like that. If you know that you have to assemble yourself, right, again, we're, we're, we're all, we're just going off this word, Behibaram. Why couldn't have just said Avraham? Could have just said Avraham. Save us a lot of reading in the Zohar. Why, why does the Zohar have to tell us? No, that's, that's Avraham. That's what it says. It is, it's telling us on a deep level that, that a person has to put themselves together to be that last gateway, to channel that light out in the most seamless, effective, amazing way. Okay, so these are the Torah mitzvahs. This is what allows us to channel this light. Now with that as an as a, as a introduction, as a transition, let me now tell you about an aspect of the laws of kashrus, right? Keeping kosher. Because you can see something amazing about keeping kosher, okay? So, so a, a kosher animal has to have two traits. One of them is that it has to have split hooves. Okay, so imagine like, you know, like a horseshoe or something like that, like a horse. You know, it's all like one curve. So that would, that would not, any, any animal that has like one curve, like a horseshoe shape, not kosher. It's got to have a, a split in the middle of that, of that hoof in order to be a kosher animal. That's one sign, but it also has to have the second sign. They have to have both sides. That's it's got to chew its cud, which means that the, the, the animals that chew their cud have, a, have multiple stomachs, and they digest and redigest and redigest their food. It's called chewing your cud. It's a very interesting process. Okay. So if it's got split, if it's got split hooves and it chews its cud, then it's a kosher animal. Okay. So, so the so the Svasemis talks about um, how there's this basic two-step process in life. One is breaking through the material world, like understanding that there's more to the world than the eye can see, there's that there's dimensions beyond this world, and then to enter into the spiritual realms. That's, that's step two. Like, once you realize there's more to this world, it doesn't automatically happen that you enter into the spiritual realm. So that's, a, that's a whole separate step. And by the way, once you say that there's something beyond this world, you can come up with any number of wacky ideas, right? To get to the truth, we say Torah emet, the, the truth of Torah. That's a separate step. Okay, very good. So now, applying that sort of two-step process of the Svasemis, I want to adapt it slightly and, and apply it to, to, to Kashrus, and, and we can get an insight into Jewish thinking and some of the problems that we see in the world in terms of thinking about these cosmic types of things. Okay? So, so here's the point. Here's, the, here's the, new, the new information that I wanted to share. So this kind of came to me this week. I'm sure other people have said it, but I haven't seen it written. And, um, and it goes like this. The camel is super interesting because the camel chews its cud, but it doesn't have a split hoof. So it's got one of the signs, but not the other. 
So, so let's think about that. I want to say the following. See, the whole idea of, of chewing or cut, that's an internal process. So it's, there are people in this category, if we want to extend this as a, as a metaphor for a certain type of person, and there are many, many people like this in the world, they're thinking very deeply. In other words, like the camel that chews its cud. They're thinking very, very deeply. In other words, we're talking about the philosophers of the world. We're talking about the scientists of the world. They're applying their brains in very real, amazing ways. But the hoof isn't cloven, meaning to say they don't see that there's dimensions beyond this world. So they're thinking very deeply, but they're thinking very deeply, thinking that they're only within this material realm. And so you fall short in terms of the big picture, no matter how deep and amazing the thinking is. If you don't understand there's more to this world beyond what the eye can see, if you don't understand that there's a God that's running the entire enterprise, then you hit up against the wall, you hit up against the, the unsplit hoof, if you will. And I, I love this idea that the Sfasamis is saying that the split hoof is like this break in, in the material realm where you can see past the curtain of physicality. Like, like to relate it to something so animalistic as the foot of a beast, right? And that the break in the foot of the beast is the severing of this illusion of all-encompassing materiality that there's a break into it and then the light is shining in from beyond and that's what the break in the hoof is. That's, to me, that's very potent. That's very amazing. So you have people who are thinking but they can't think past this world, this material world. Okay, that's, that's, that's symbolized by the camel. Now you have the pig. Pig, interesting in, in its own way. The pig has a split hoof but it doesn't chew its cuff. It's, it's, it's cut. So that means there's a category of people in this world, I want to suggest, that understand that there are dimensions beyond this world. They get that, but they don't think about it at all. Right? Like, in, in learning, like, when I'm learning with someone, sometimes, you know, this phrase comes up, which is, therefore what? Okay, so there's dimensions beyond this world. Right? There's this concept of eternity. There's God, whatever... Therefore, what? How is, that, how is that affecting your actions? But we know classically the pig is happiest when it's just lying in mud. Right? It's like you say, well, what are you, what are you doing with that very expansive thought that you have? I'm good. I'm good. No, wait a second here. Like, you, just, like, you just blew through the physical universe. What you, now, now what? Now, now it gets exciting. So the problem with the, 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 with the pig, quote-unquote, type, type level of thinking is that, is that once you understand there's something beyond, it, it, it requires that next step. Like, what are we going to do with this opportunity, therefore? And that's the amazing thing about keeping kosher. The, the Jewish point of view is... There are dimensions beyond this, and we think about it all of the time. We can't stop thinking about it. We can't stop thinking about, therefore, what does that mean for me if I'm part of this greater infinity, right? Because we're sort of this, 
this infinity within an infinity, a smaller infinity within a greater infinity. Because God is infinite, but he puts an aspect of himself inside of us, which is this soul, this wave related to the ocean. So there's an infinity within a greater infinity, right? So what does that therefore mean? That's, that's the project of Torah. That's the project of this amazing transformation that's, that the world is going through and heading toward till it hits its perfection and then beyond, 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 beyond. Because if God is infinite, that means that there are infinite levels that the world is capable of achieving. It never ends. This never-ending, amazing journey just higher and higher and higher and higher. Um, so, so again, this is an example of if we're the last gate before God's light trickles through from the infinite to a way where it can be accessible, the physical universe, and we're the last guardians, the the Avraham before the Yud Kevavke comes out, right? How can we be good gatekeepers? So, so that's just one example that that keeping kosher, right, is one example where that physical act actually blesses us with this mindset. Again, this is going on not on the conscious level. This is this is a deeper level, right? That's why they say actually, if you if you don't eat kosher food, they say it puts a blockage over your heart we can sort of begin to understand that because a blockage over my heart, I would translate to say I'm not thinking about it. Right? Like I'm not thinking about these things. But what did we just say? You need to be aware of them and be thinking about them. Right? So, 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 so keeping kosher is just one of, say, 613 examples, right, of how these practices allow us to transmit in, in the most amazing way. And again, sometimes we're going to be conscious of it, like if we give, say, some tzedakah, and that gives, you know, some charity, and then that sort of like, you know, turns a light on on the face of the person we're giving it. Sometimes you actually see it in effect, and you see the, the transferal of light, if you will, to use those terms. Other times you'll never see it. You know, I'm eating in my house kosher crackers. Like, it's got an OU on the box, like... Who am I helping right now? <laughs> well, you for one. But but it doesn't it doesn't have to be on the revealed conscious level in order for something actually to be happening, right? And I'll just end with just one of the great teachings, which is, you know, Rabbi Akiva, who's compared to Moshe Rabbeinu, and in fact, in some instances, is is considered even greater than Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, you know, I'll tell you. It says, I just learned this from Rabbi Shapiro, something amazing. You know, everybody knows that when you look at the Hebrew letters, and the Hebrew letters are like these divine constructs, but they, they have an element to them, which is so beautiful, but I, I, I never just never knew this until this Shabbos. The letters have crowns on them. So I always thought crowns, okay, I never just really thought about it, honestly. Okay, the crowns are hinting at a certain realm of something and their beautifications and it's cool, whatever. So so there's a, in the Gomorrah, it talks about how when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to get the Torah, 
that he saw God, so to speak, right, tying crowns to the letters of the Torah. That's what God was doing when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Mount Sinai, was tying crowns to the letters of the Torah. So Moshe, so Rabbi Moshe Shapiro explains that a crown, like a kingly crown, humanly speaking, a crown sits above your head. What a crown indicates is that there's something transcendent, something beyond your physicality, which is manifest. So what God was doing was tying crowns to the letters because all of the letters of the Torah are accessing realms that are beyond. Do you understand? That's like we've talked about, like I phrased it this way one time, that the Torah is the infinite compressed into the finite. But if it's the infinite compressed into the finite, you have to see in the finite level an aspect of its infinity. That's the crown of the letter. In other words, you can write it down. If it's truly infinite, you couldn't write it down. But that's the amazing thing. It's the infinite compressed into the finite. So in the finite, you actually see an aspect of the infinite, which is this crown, which is this aspect of the letter, which is pointing that there's something beyond it as well. And of course, that's not just true on the written level, uh, letter level. It's true on what the words are saying and teaching us to do. That in these actions, these actions themselves have something beyond what we can see. There are crowns to our activities, just like there are crowns to the le letters. There's something extra being transacted through the mitzvot because God himself is keeping the mitzvot, which means that there's this actual energy, infinite thing kicked into these commands, to these actions, which are transcendent and yet accessible to us in this finite realm. Okay, we'll stop. <laughs>